0: In Leviticus 20, we read this. Just listen, if you would, please. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, You shall also say to the sons of Israel, Any man from the sons of Israel or from the aliens sojourning in Israel who gives any of his offspring to Moloch. Now, to give your offspring to Moloch meant that you wanted to appease the gods because of your sinfulness, and so you would take your child and put it in the mouth of this idol, and the flames would burn your your child up. Your child would be consumed, and then you would have appeased the gods by giving the gods the thing that was most precious to you, your child. Do you understand this? So it was beyond sacrificing a bull or a lamb, a sheep, it was far beyond the value and preciousness to you of any of your livestock. It was your child. So you would take this child and you would put this child in the mouth of Moloch, this pagan god, this idol, and flames would consume the child. So this was the way the Canaanites worshipped. This was their religion. They would take their children and they would put their children in the mouths of Moloch And their children would be burned to death, reduced to ashes. Every time we talk about the state of nature and the innocence of the American Indian, what you have to keep your mind on is that this was the worship of people who did not know God. That their worship was a worship of idols, and life was meaningless to them. Do you understand this? And this is true of the Canaanites. You remember how um, God said to Abraham that they would be in Egypt for 400 years. You remember this? That they would be captives in Egypt for 400 years. And the reason was that he said that the wickedness of the Canaanites had not yet reached the brim of the cup. And so they'd be in Egypt for 400 years, and then the wickedness would reach the brim of the cup. And then he would send them into Canaan, and he would have them wipe out all the Canaanites because of their wicked practices. Well, at the very heart of their wicked practices was sacrificing their children to Moloch. And if you read in the Old Testament, the Old Testament says, God says that this sacrificing of children to Moloch is an evil so wicked that it has never entered his mind. And this is one of the statements of Scripture that I've never been able to understand, because if it never entered in his mind, why did he talk about it? You know, how could anything not have entered the mind of God? He's omniscient. He knew an infinite number of years before the, the Canaanites did it what they were going to do, because he knows everything, right? And so this he says, This never entered my mind. That's how wicked this thing is. And so now the Canaanites have come into, I mean, the Israelites have come, God's people have now come. The Canaanites' wickedness reached the brim, but they still have Canaanites surrounding them. They've got the Amorites and the Jebusites and the Hittites and the Perizzites, right? And so what they have is a culture of child sacrifice all around them to the idol of Moloch. And this is what Moses is told by God to say to the Israelites. You shall say to the sons of Israel, any man from the sons of Israel or from the alien sojourning in Israel who gives any of his offspring to Moloch shall surely be put to death. The people of the land shall stone him with stones. Okay? So if anybody in your land, and not just an Israelite, but if you have anybody visiting you, Anybody who comes over from one of the other lands and begins to live among you. You know, somebody that crosses the Rio Grande. Are you with me? All right. I will, if they give their children a Moloch, either you or sojourners in your midst. They give their children, you're to stone them to death. All right. I will also set my face against that man and will cut him off from among his people because he has given some of his offspring to Moloch, so as to defile my sanctuary and to profane my holy name. In other words, God hates it, it's not to be done, anybody that does it is to be stoned to death, and God himself will set his face against them. So you know that the stoning isn't the end. God's opposition to that person will continue into the next life. Now, listen, <clears throat> because about this time, you know where I'm headed. Today's the 39th anniversary of Roe v. Wade. It's very clear to me that Roe v. Wade is Americans sacrificing their children to Moloch. But we're, very, we're much more sophisticated today. We don't worship big sort of bowls with mouths with fire coming out. What we worship is self-determination, autonomy, a woman's choice, uh, Our idols are so much more sophisticated because they're figments of our imagination. (laughs) All right. And so today, and today we have antibiotics, so we're able to keep them from dying when they kill their children. Okay. And we have all these ways that we sort of feel sophisticated as we look back on the Canaanites. Any of you ever gone to the Art Institute in Chicago? So what's the most interesting thing about the Art Institute of Chicago? Yeah, art. I don't think so, actually. I think the most interesting thing about it is idolatry. If you go in one room, have any of you seen the Balaams, the display of Balaams in the Art Institute? You've seen it. You've seen it. They have these these gods from Canaan. These little bull figurines, you know? And there are the gods of the Canaanites. And so if you think about today and you think about us going to the Art Institute and seeing the gods of these uh, ancient peoples and how we look down on them and think they're so stupid. Well, we worship what? Choice and freedom and self-determination and autonomy and respectability, you know? And we're so much more sophisticated. Doesn't that make you feel good, Linda? Linda. I love looking down on people that have lived centuries ago. It makes me feel so enlightened. How about you? Don't you feel good about yourself? We've evolved. All right? Now, that's, I'm being sarcastic, but that's how I think. I'm really telling you how I think. I'm really telling you that I do look down <laughs> on everybody that came before, because I do think I am progressive. Progressive. I mean, I know, you, don't, you think that's laughable. But I really do see myself as progressive. I had an earring in 1975. And all these other dudes just are discovering them. You know? Uh, all right. Now listen. Here's what happens to us. We look around us. And we see other people having abortions and we think, well, I'm not going to do that because I know that God hates bloodshed. And I know that they don't understand that it's bloodshed because they don't think it's a life. And so I'm not really, I'm not going to say anything about them. But this is not for me. Do you understand? And this is this is the supreme expression of Christianity in America today. Well, thats that's... That's, you know what I'm going to say. That's not for me. That's not for me. I mean, I'm not going to say anything against it. I'm not, I mean, if I have an opportunity, I'll explain why I believe the way I believe. But they don't know God. They couldn't have right thoughts about it anyhow. You understand? They don't know the value of life because they don't know that the image of God is in man. And woman. Okay? And so I don't want to be judgmental. What they need to do is become Christians and then they can understand the value of human life. And so the height of Christian godliness and piety in the evangelical world today is to say, that's that's not for me. And so the Israelites were the same way. The Israelites had faith to not give their children to Moloch, you understand, because they knew that they were supposed to be stoned to death if they did. And so the Christians would look at the Canaanites around them and maybe the Canaanites that came and lived in their communities and they said, well, that's that's not for me. But listen to what he goes on and says. He says, I will also set my face against that man and will cut him off from among his people because he's given some of his offspring to Moloch so as to defile my sanctuary and to profane my holy name. And so if he just ended there, it would be no big deal because we all, generally, probably most of us at this point in our lives are like, you know, abortion is like bad karma. And it's not for me. But then listen to what God goes on and says. If the people of the land however, should ever disregard that man when he gives any of his offspring to Moloch, so as not to put him to death, then I myself will set my face against that man and against his family, and I will cut off from among their people both him and all those who play the harlot after him by playing the harlot after Moloch. Now you understand what's going on there. God his first, condemn this. And we all say, I'm hip with that. It's cool. And then we move over here and we see, monkey sees no evil, hears no evil, does no evil. You know, they don't have the Holy Spirit anyhow. They can't understand what they're doing. And and, and that's not for me. And then we act as if we don't see it and we don't judge it. We don't do anything, you know? And God has our number. God is never willing to have... Man-pleasing, pious, pharisaical Christians looking at each other and thinking we're superior. About the point we feel like we're good, he comes along and he just goes like that. He just, he just smacks us. And he says, listen, you're going to want to say that you're cool because you don't have anything to do with it. And, and then you're going to turn away from the sacrifices all around you. He says, listen to me. If you do that, I'm going to judge you just as if you were sacrificing yourself because you are playing the harlot after Moloch. By not judging it, by not stopping it, you are as bad as the ones who are doing it. (sighs) Now, This statement that I just made is true. This statement is true. Never in scripture does it present godliness as you keeping yourself clean. What the Bible actually says is have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness. But rather expose them. And that's the That is the dividing line among biblical Christians today. You can separate all Christians today. One half, there are those who are content to go to heaven being able to say to God, I had nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness. And then the other half are those who said, I had nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, and I exposed them. Does this make sense to you guys? Please. Please tell me this makes sense. Okay? It makes sense. And so then we see that those of us who have not had abortions are no better than those of us who have had abortions. And let me tell you, they are here. I know it. Okay? I know it. And I want to say something today, that my, you know how everybody thinks that if you believe that a wife should submit to her husband, that means that the wife is barefoot and pregnant and stupid? You know, you know that? What it means is that the wife is restored to dignity and can begin to rebuke you without fear of your reprisal. (laughs) That's really the biblical view of womanhood. And so my wife rebuked me for how I preached last week. Do you want to take a guess what it was? Do you remember last week where I whined about some people confessing their sins to me? Do you remember that? Where I said, I don't want to hear about it. Remember that? Do you remember that? You all remember it. That was wicked of me to do that. Do you know why? It was wicked because... I am set apart by God to hear your confession of sin. And to say to you that God covers your sin with his son's blood. And so if I ever complain to you about how I don't like hearing your confessions of sin, (laughs) it's absolutely horrible. Because then, instead of you thinking about me being God's gift to you to hear your confessions of sin, you know that I don't like to hear your confessions of sin, and so what are you going to do? You're going to stay in bondage to your sin. Because you don't want to co- you've, you've learned to love me, some of you. <laughs> Thank you for smiling, I needed that. <laughs> don't say we, white woman. Uh, <laughs> All right, you're only half white. It's true, if you know Esther. Okay. (laughs) Okay, so what you have to realize is that God sets pastors and elders and Titus 2 older women apart to hear your confession of sin. What I said was wrong. And you have also, some of you have heard me say that there is no greater joy of a pastor than hearing your confession of sin. And so, yes... Sometimes it's not fun for me. Do you understand that? But there's no higher calling in my work. Please confess your sin to me. The dirtiest, awfulest sins. Please confess them to me. That's my highest work. Okay? Now, coming back to the issue of abortion, I said to you, There are many people here who have had abortions, have paid for abortions, are responsible for abortions. If we don't witness against the slaughter of God's little ones, we are just as evil as the people here who have themselves murdered their children. This is the meaning of this text. If you pretend, God says, like you don't see what's going on all around you and you act as if it's nothing, then... I will judge both you and the abortionist because you're both playing the harlot, okay? So what this means is that all of us who have learned to live in a world where 1.3 million unborn children are slaughtered, one quarter of our pregnancies in our country every year, All right. We have blood on our hands. It's not them. It's not them. In the first service, what I did was I read a sermon I gave in um, Blackhawk Presbytery back in 1989. And Blackhawk Presbytery is a large group of churches. A presbytery is the elders and pastors getting together about every three months. And That presbytery was the PCUSA, you know, the big mainline Presbyterian Church USA, first pres here, Um, uh, United Presbyterian over by ECC, Um, and there may be a third one, I don't know. So anyhow, that, that presbytery invited me to come and speak on the subject of the Bible and abortion. And so I gave them a sermon on the Bible and abortion. And... Um, that's the sermon I gave in the first service, but it was very difficult to give it because it was 20 years ago, 22 years ago. And my language back then was very different. I always referred to human beings instead of using the inclusive man. Um, everything about it was politically correct. And I was so much older then, I'm younger than that now. Thank you, Esther. That's a Dylan reference for those of you that don't know. But that is the way godliness gets old. And I'm not calling myself godly, but I am saying when you're sanctified, you get younger, not older. Did you all know that? It's really sweet. You're more hopeful as you get older. Isn't that amazing? All right, so let me quickly go through here, and then I want to make a few points in conclusion. Today, as I said, is the 30... Maybe I didn't say it. It's the 39th anniversary of Roe v. Wade. Roe v. Wade was the Supreme Court decision that took away all the laws of all the 50 states against abortion and said that there was an emanation from a of of the sort of context of the Constitution and the Bill of Rights, and if you hear the words emanation and penumbra, you should smell a rat. In fact, the Constitution doesn't talk about abortion. What the Constitution does is it creates a context of a right to privacy, which is uh, the the penumbra and the emanations, or you can argue it either way. And so what they did is, with the Comstock laws back in the 1950s, birth control, they decided that there was sort of of a, a mist and a vapor in the Constitution that smart brains could see. And that mist and vapor is called a right to privacy, and they declared that all birth control laws would be summarily dealt with would be Would be declared to be unconstitutional, so then twenty years later, they come along and they say, "Well, you know something that same emanation, those same penumbras now will cover the slaughter of unborn children in the womb, and that will be legal too. Do you understand and so in in Roe v Wade, we began to have at first it was one point five million abortions, and that continued for many years, and now it 's one point three. But, but the stats are, are deceptive, and here's the reason. What they're not counting is ECPs. And they're also not counting a lot of uh, prostagland and RU486 later in, in pregnancy. Okay, And so what you have is you have a culture now, and it's true all across the Western world. The, the, the estimates around the world are somewhere between 35 and 60 million abortions a year. Okay? In the Western world. And so what you have now is you have cultures that are built on the back of unwanted pregnancies being removed. In Russia today, it is not uncommon for women to have had eight, nine, ten abortions. Um, in America today, a huge number of women have had multiple abortions. And so our economies run on the back of abortion. If you've ever read economic analyses, a lot of the reason that we're, for instance, in trouble with the Social Security system is that we've wiped out 50 million American citizens over the last 39 years. So you think about what would be true today if all of them had come to adulthood, and we're wage earners, and we're now having children. And you can see that part of the economic problem of the Western world is that the population is being decimated. And so today is the 39th anniversary of this decision. Now, I want to give you a little more history. When Roe v. Wade came down for the Supreme Court, Catholics immediately opposed it, had already been opposed it. The American Law Association had been yelling to change the law for a number of years, and Catholics had been opposing the American Law Association, which is an association of attorneys. Am I getting that name right? Is it the American? The Institute, go ahead. I'm sorry, not association, American Law Institute. This is a, a small group of several hundred Elite, but they're not all professors. Some of them are practicing attorneys, aren't they? Who get together and, and come up with the modernization of legislation as, as attorneys. And they had been calling for the legalization of abortion. And there was a guy named Quay, whose son was a Jesuit priest, Paul, who was a friend of mine. And this guy, Quay, uh, was in that group, an elite attorney, a professor. I think he was at Georgetown. And he saw that abortion was going to be legalized. He was Roman Catholic, and so he understood the issue. And so back in, I don't know when that was, I'm going to say 66, 67, he set aside an issue of the Georgetown Law Journal, Law Review. And the first half of it dealt with the medicine and abortion, and the second half dealt with the law and abortion throughout history. And he was seeing what was coming, and he was opposing it. So the whole Georgetown Law Journal, I mean, do you see the irony of this? <laughs> you know, anybody that knows what Georgetown is today, you know? The whole issue was given over to opposing, from a medical and legal standpoint, what was coming in 1973. And that was about 7 to 10 years prior to Roe v. Wade. But all the law guys wanted it changed The Supreme Court got it in their brain that this was what they were supposed to do. So in 73, they issued Roe v. Wade. And then what happened is Roman Catholics had already been opposing it. All right? But Protestants, we were asleep at the wheel. You remember the band? We were completely asleep at the wheel. When I worked pumping diesel fuel in Sawyer, Michigan at a 76 truck stop one night, the band Asleep at the Wheel came through. All right, that's my claim to fame. I filled the bus with diesel fuel. Um, that was the fun night things at night at the truck stop, is who came through after their concerts. So anyhow, Protestants were asleep at the wheel. Protestants did not know abortion was the shedding of innocent blood. Protestants had no principles against it. Now, I know today you're used to going to conservative churches and having a supposed abortion, right? And so it's not scandalous today, but back then biblical Christians did not oppose abortion. Now, how do I know this? Well, back then, my father in law's Tyndale House, that's Mary Lee's dad's company, they published a book called Birth Control and the Christian. And it was the convictions of a whole bunch of different um, muckety-mucks in the evangelical world on birth control and abortion. And if you read that book, you'll see immediately that Christians who were conservative, Bible-believing, and evangelical at the time had had no clue what they were dealing with. When you compare what was printed at that time by evangelical presses like Tyndale House to what the Roman Catholics were doing, it was like awake, asleep. So what happened? Why are biblical Christians today against abortion? Anybody know? Here's what happened. Two men went on a barnstorming tour of the United States, shaking evangelical leaders and pastors by the scruff of the neck. Do you know who those two men were? Francis Schaeffer and C. Everett Koop. And they went across the country, and they just shook people until we all woke up. Now, you're still not quite prepared to believe that we were all asleep in 1973, right? So let me prove it to you this way. C. Everett Koop went on to become the Surgeon General under Reagan. Some of you remember that? You remember that, all right? C. Everett Koop was our family doctor in Philadelphia. And if any of you want to hear a hilarious story and you're a man, because if you're a woman, I'm not going to tell it, I'll tell you what C. Everett Koop once did to me. All right, But he was the doctor of our family and a very close friend. My father, in about 1979, was asked to become the executive director of an organization called the Christian Medical and Dental Society. It is the professional association of conservative evangelical Christians who are physicians and dentists. Why my dad was asked to do that, I won't go into, but he was. He agreed to take the job. At the time, Mary Lee and I were in Boulder. And the first thing my father did when he became executive director is he wrote C. Everett Koop a letter. And he asked C. Everett Koop to join Christian Medical and Dental Society. Now, I have this correspondence in my files. Why would he write C. Everett Koop to ask him to join the main professional association of conservative evangelical physicians? Why? I mean, it seems like the most ludicrous thing in the world, because how could Coop have not been a member already? He was, the, he was far and away the most eminent physician in the United States who was a Christian. Far and away. He was the groundbreaking pediatric surgeon, chief surgeon at Children's Memorial in Philadelphia. That's why Reagan chose him. So why would he have not been a member of this professional association? Well... Here's the deal. He had been a member, but he had resigned his membership. Why had C. Everett Koop resigned his membership of Christian Medical and Dental Society? Because they would not allow statements to be made against abortion. That's why. And so C. Everett Koop resigned his membership because CMS would not say no to abortion. Now, today, it's inconceivable to us that conservative Christians would not oppose abortion, but that was the condition of our country in the late 70s. And so what my dad said to Coop, and I have this letter also, is he said, Chick, because that's what people that know him called him, Chick, C-H-I-C-K, Chick Coop. (laughs) I promise that I am going to get Christian Medical Society, to take a position against abortion. And I trust at that time you will restore your membership. And so today, probably if I were to ask you to raise your hands, probably, and every head bowed, every eye closed, in other words, if I could get you to be honest, probably about 95% of us would be pro-life, all right? Today, the problem isn't convincing you that abortion is wrong. The problem is convincing you that you should do anything to protect the little babies. That's the problem in the evangelical world today because our piety, our godliness, is impotent. It's for ourselves alone. Do you you understand this? We don't feel any weight of standing for the oppressed. Do you you understand this? And I could show you this across the board. It's not simply unborn babies that we don't care about. It's also, we don't care about the illegal aliens. They're just a nuisance. They broke the law, get rid of them. Am I right? I mean, come on, tell me I'm right. We don't care about the orphans. We don't care about the oppressed. We don't care about blacks. And you say, oh, I'm not racist. And I say, oh, yeah, you are. Oh, no, 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 I'd be black, man. I say, you're not black. Oh, but I'm not prejudiced. I say, yes, you are. (laughs) <laughs> you say, no, I'm not. I say, you are too. And so you just shut me out and you say, well, he doesn't know what he's talking about, but I don't care. It doesn't matter to me what he thinks of me. I say, you're prejudiced. <laughs> you go, I'm not. R2. D2. <laughs> okay, now listen, here's how you're prejudiced. You're prejudiced because you believe in affirmative action. And you know why you believe in affirmative action? Because what you want is to appear to be enlightened and progressive and evolved. And so you don't give a rip about blacks just as long as they shut up. And so you're prepared to do anything you have to in order to be viewed as not prejudiced. But how many of you actually think about what will help African Americans today? How many of you stew on it? How many of you are willing to go against the grain of the United States of America to take the part of African Americans? Because you realize if you really want to see African Americans finally once and for all be done with being oppressed Do you realize what they have to do is they have to take us on at our game they can't get handouts anymore they have to beat us they have to whoop us and it's something other than football <laughs> i mean do you understand this Everything we are, people, today, is the product of what political correctness tells us we should be. We don't really love blacks. We don't really love the unborn. We don't really love the poor. And we don't really love the illegal alien. And we don't really love the welfare mother. And we don't really love Baptists. Now, that's a joke. Or Presbyterians. (laughs) And we really don't love women. We really don't love women. Now I'm going to get dangerous. It used to be that I went around the country speaking on the subject of sexuality. And I remember one time when I was in uh, western Massachusetts, I was speaking to a bunch of university students from... um, a bunch of campus groups from a bunch of colleges. There are a whole bunch of colleges out in western Massachusetts. And ironically, at the center of that area is a little town called Northampton, Massachusetts, which is where Jonathan Edwards got fired. (laughs) So here I am speaking to these students, and it's of course because it's college students in campus ministries, it's overwhelmingly women. All right? And in this particular evening, the majority of them were Asian. So, Asian women. And I'm looking at them and I'm going to speak to them on sexuality, you know, the meaning of manhood and womanhood. (laughs) And I'll never forget doing this. I looked at them and I thought, okay, what are they thinking? And what they were thinking is we're very sophisticated, hardworking, uh, good academics. We're going to go on to grad school or to professional positions. And uh, nobody needs to give us anything because we live in a day when women are able to be all they want to be, all they're meant to be, all their gifts, right? And so entering into their minds, I thought to myself, this is what I'm going to do. So I I began speaking and I said to, to them, and it was all tongue in cheek, I said, isn't it wonderful to live in a day when women are finally able to be free? And of course, they're all, yeah, 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 you know? And so then I began to list the freedoms of women today. And I talked about the freedom to be able to use body parts to entice men and to make money off it on the internet. The freedom to be able to pay for themselves when they go out on a date. But that was years ago and today it's the freedom to pay for themselves and the boy when they go out on a date. You know, the freedom to have a job and be a mother and be a wife. And statistics show what? Statistics show that if the wife and husband both work full-time, who does the housework? I hope you all know this. It's the woman. She does the housework. The freedom to do the housework, to work full-time, and to be the one who has stretch marks on her belly and a bunch of other things I won't mention. In other words, she still has to give birth to the children and carry them for nine months and nurse them and change their diapers. Okay? The freedom to be a sex object, the freedom to entice men, the freedom to pay for the dates, the freedom, increasingly, we're having to explain to women in this church that you really shouldn't ask him to marry you. You know, let let him, give him a little more time. Let him see if if he can man up to it, you know. (laughs) You know. The freedom to be the one who pursues the man. Do you understand? It used to be you'd be pursued. The freedom to be the ones who live in poverty. You realize in America today it's overwhelmingly women who live in poverty, not men. Do you all know this? All right. The freedom to be the principal carriers of STDs. You realize this. Overwhelmingly, women's bodies carry sexually transmitted diseases. Disproportionate to men. Now, do you want me to keep going on and telling you all the freedoms of women today? <laughs> I mean, is this encouraging to you, Elizabeth Borka? The freedom of no-fault divorce. I mean, we just have a whole... uh, With all due deference to Jared, I won't use the word I want to use. We have just unbelievable numbers and, and, and volumes of freedoms for women today. Because today, women are liberated. Now, you realize I go through sex object, I go through STDs, I go through finances, I go through workload, I go through bodies and birth and nursing... Are you with me? And now I come to the freedom to pay a man three fifty to five hundred dollars to go in your body and rip your little baby to shreds. And we we think And for what? Now, you want me to tell you for what? This is so that men can have their lust without feeling the weight of responsibility. That's it. There's nothing about the life of godliness that requires a woman to have STDs. Would you agree with me? There's nothing about the life of godliness that requires a woman to work and then go home and cook and to listen to her husband whine and then to take care of the children and to fall into bed to get up the next morning, to go to work, to come home, to do the vacuuming, to do the laundry. Is this the life of godliness? There's nothing about godliness that requires a woman to be showing her breasts through her blouse. (laughs) I mean, you guys... You know how many times I've had women sitting right in front of me and I'm trying to preach and I'm trying to avoid the breasts and you don't want me to say this, right? Because you just want to have it be a reality without having anybody call attention to it. <laughs> how many of you men in this church have, have tried to avoid looking at breasts that are staring at you? Now look around, women. Is there anything about the life of godliness that requires women to show their breasts? I mean, come on, answer me. How about some women? All right, all right, all right. Now, there is a certain comeliness of of the female figure that is inescapable. I will grant you that. But that's not what I'm talking about. That is perfectly godly. God made you that way, and that's beautiful. But there's a difference between that and actual flesh grabbing you. Right, men? All right. So there's nothing about godliness that requires women to be a sex object for the vision of the men. There's nothing about godliness that requires them to carry an SAD. There's nothing about godliness that requires them to work full-time and come home and do the work, right? Are are you all with me? Is there anything about godliness that requires no-fault divorce? Is there anything about godliness that requires women to kill their unborn children? I mean... So help me now, how have we progressed? How have we evolved? What liberties do women have today? And so then typically what happens is everybody looks at me and they says, well, you know, what you're really talking about is taking us back to the days when women didn't have a right to vote. And I go, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that's really what I'm, that's, that's deep inside of me. I just feel that. I mean, what I really want to do is take away Mary Lee's right to vote. (laughs) This is absurd. That's the level of reason and logic in the world today. That if you think women shouldn't kill their unborn children, then you don't think women should vote. Boy, they caught me, didn't they? Do you know that this last week one of the godly men of our church was called on the carpet and told if his work wasn't as good as it was, can I say this? I hope so. That if his work hadn't been as good as it was, that he would be fired. Do you know why? Because he goes to a church where the pastor doesn't believe in the equality of women. And it was a, it was a real sophisticate that said that to him. And his job is literally on the line for being at this church because I don't believe in the equality of women. (laughs) So apparently, in order to believe in the equality of women, what I have to do is I have to believe in women working and then coming home and working. I have to be in favor of women carrying STDs. I have to believe in women having abortions. I have to believe in no-fault divorce. Because without those things, women aren't equal to men. Alright, now men. Do you remember what I said? you realize why women have to be this way? The reason they have to be this way is so that our lusts can be unfettered. Women have to be this way so that we can get our kicks anytime we want it without any repercussions or responsibility. Does this make sense to you all? Do you understand what I'm saying? In other words, when you look at pornography, you are responsible for the slaughter of unborn children in this country. And you say, well, no, 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 no. It's just a picture. It's just bandwidth. I say, would you think it's a real woman? And you're going to say, well, no, no, they airbrush her. They use Photoshop. I say, no, 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 no. That's not what I'm talking about. Do you think it's a real woman? You say, well, yeah. If it wasn't a real woman, I wouldn't get my kids. I say, okay, it's a real woman. And so what you're doing is you are causing her to prostitute her Childbearing and nursing. Okay? Her life giving, creative beauty to your lust. Do you understand me? And that woman that you're looking at cannot continue to make a living off of your lust if she gets stretch marks. (laughs) Because somehow stretch marks men don't associate with lust. Why? Think about it. It's because stretch marks remind you of your obligation to marry her and to care for her children. And this is the reason you like little girls and young women instead of women. In the old days, when they used to paint women who were beautiful to men, what were those women like? Well, you'll look at the women in the art Institute, and you'll see, they're mothers. Those are the women that were painted in the past, because those were the women that real men thought beautiful. <laughs> they had flesh on their bones. Because they'd had babies and and their parts of their body. All right, I don't want to be Mark Driscoll here. Okay, their parts of their body looked used. And those were beautiful women in the old days. But today it's what? Today it's twiggy. Today, it's, what's the name of that perverse designer that always uses almost prepubescent women for their advertising? Calvin Klein. Listen, people. Today in America, we live on the backs of the slaughter of unborn children. When we had a man come over from Rwanda who was a pastor, and he preached to us, do you know what that man from Rwanda said? He said, you look at our nation, which slaughtered 900,000 of our people by machete a few years ago, and you say, we're horrible. But he says, I come here, and every year you kill 1.5 million of your unborn children. Every single year. And you look at us, and you say, we're bad? He said, get your own house in order, evangelicals. And then what do we do? Well, we go RTK, you know. We go like private, sort of piety, kind of, well, I don't do it. And I'm sure my daughter hasn't had an abortion. And then when we drive by the the abortuary on South Walnut, what do we do? We look the other way. I see you. If I'm out in front, I see you all doing this. You're all like, you won't look at it. Why? You're not having an abortion. (laughs) Why won't you look at it? Well, because it's just horrible. I said, well, if it's horrible, why don't you go there and say no? Well, you know, Christians are supposed to love. I said, well, what about the baby? The baby's dying. How about the baby? How about some of you caring for the baby? Well, well, I mean, Tim, you're being a bit high handed. You know, you keep putting me in a, in a funnel, and I keep having to keep moving ahead, and I don't like this at all. When's the benediction going to come? <laughs> you know, I say, listen, 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 listen. Would you please agree with me that women are not free today? Would you please? Can we just see this? Women aren't free today. They're free. Come on. Women aren't free today. Would you please agree to me that godliness is not simply keeping your own hands clean, that godliness is standing for the widow and the orphan? Okay? Would you please acknowledge to me that you don't have the courage to confess your use of pornography because it's so horrible to you that you can't bring yourself to confess it? Would you please agree with that with me? Would you please agree with me, wives, that you've stopped even hoping for the purity of your husband? Can we please be Christians? Can we just have a church that's agreed that it doesn't matter that other churches have pro-abortion elders? The last church I came to here in town... There was a muckety-muck academic who called me when they decided they wanted me as their pastor, their search committee. He called me because he was the moderator of the elders board. And he said to me, Tim, I want to talk to you before we go ahead with you coming here to become the pastor. I have a number of questions to ask you. So he went through all these questions and... uh, He asked me, for instance, whether or not I believe women should be pastors and elders. And I said, well, you know, for the last 10 years, I've ordained women to the eldership and the pastorate. And I was so much older then. I'm younger than that now. (laughs) I ain't going to do it no more. I've repented of that. And so he asked me a bunch of questions. And when I explained to him that I did still think it was fine for women to vote, He decided that even though he disagreed with me, he said, well, I disagree with you, but that's okay. I understand your position. So he was vetting me. So then he finally decides I'm okay. This guy out in Podunk, Wisconsin, who apparently does have a brain. I mean, that was what it was all about. I had to prove that I wasn't going to make an ass of myself in front of all these academics at this church. So we get to the end, and we're about to hang up. It took about an hour and a half. It was at dinner time. And then I said to him, you know, there's one thing that you haven't brought up yet. And I said, here's what it is. And I want to ask you. I said, "Uh, you haven't brought up abortion yet. And he said to me, well, um, what do you think about abortion? I said, well, abortion is the taking of the life of an innocent human being. It is murder. And I said, you know, there are many reasons that a woman can find herself in a position where she will do that. And we are to be merciful to women who find themselves without the support of the man that impregnated with their fathers forcing them to go ahead and proceed. I went through all the things that can cause women to murder their child. But I said, we must come back to the fact that it is the taking of the life of a human being bearing the image of God. And it is therefore murder, and it is therefore something that is absolutely an abomination to God. And he then said this to me. He said, well, he said, I disagree with you, but 95% of our congregation would agree with you. Now think about this. This is an evangelical church in a community. The chairman of the board is for abortion. Okay? And that was the church I went into. All right? And so here we are, and we know that all around us are other churches that claim to be Christian. Are you with me? That claim to be evangelical. That claim to be Bible-believing and conservative who have the moderator of the elders' board, pro-baby slaughter. And so I come back to you and I say, can we agree here? Can we agree here that we'll be Christians? Can we agree that we won't give our children to Moloch and that we will expose those who do give their children to Moloch? Or are you just willing to be on this side where you have this private Christian conviction that if it's ever convenient to trot it out, that you may take a step towards doing that, but generally speaking, it's best to leave these things unspoken because after all, we have to protect our position at the university. <laughs> Can we be just Christian? Can we agree what a Christian is? Can we agree that a Christian what? That a Christian doesn't look at pornography. Can we please agree with this? That if a Christian does look at pornography, that he is disciplined by other men. Can, how many, what? uh, Don't put your, up. Don't put your hand up unless, up. Now, now, see, you, you women don't get to vote on this one. How many? We, we agree with this, huh? Don't worry, you don't have to be a member here. I'm just asking, in principle, hypothetically, if there were such a church, would you agree with it? That pornography use should be disciplined? Huh? And then, you women, now you get to vote, would you feel safer? Would you be happy? Would you like to not have to compete with other women's breasts? <laughs> yeah, she says, I'm blind. She is. So she really doesn't know what her competition is. That's good. That's a blessing. Okay, so that's the sermon on the 39th anniversary of Roe v. Wade. God says we are not to give our children to Moloch. God says we are not to act as if we don't see it. And we don't know what's going on. And so a final plea with all of you. Not you women. Not you women. Every single man here... I want you today to resolve that you once, once, only once, that you are going to go down to the place they kill babies here in town and that you're going to walk up and down while they kill them. And if you want to know when they kill them, ask the real man in this church, Ginger Mahoney. That woman has such courage. She's down there all the time crying out to the women, please don't kill your baby, I'll help you. And she does this constantly. Ask her when they kill them. When is it? 7 to when? 7 to 10.30 or 11 on Thursday. Carol says they do it all day. Carol also is one of our church's courageous men. Rachel, <laughs> no, we know you're not men, but you take responsibility for the oppressed, don't you? And that's what a man's supposed to do. I'm going to end by reading from the book of Job. A few years ago, I was reading Job, and I came across this. Job is talking about his godliness and how much he's suffered. And he describes his former position in his city. And he talks about how when he came to the public place, that all the young men and the old men stood up, shut their mouths, and honored him. He says, my reputation was unbelievable. Everybody respected me. And then, in the middle of chapter 29, he says why he was respected. And here's what he says. He says, because, so he's talked about the respect they had for him. And then he says, because I delivered the poor who cried for help. And the orphan who had no helper, the blessing of the one ready to perish, came upon me. And I made the widow's heart sing for joy. I put on righteousness and it clothed me. My justice was like a robe and a turban. I was what? I was eyes to the blind and feet to the lame. I was a father to the needy. And I investigated the case, which I did not know. And then my favorite, I broke the jaws of the wicked and snatched the prey from his teeth. (laughs) Listen, you want to know what godliness is? Don't go to any conference or read any book published by evangelicals today. They'll never tell you that is godliness. Go to Job. And then find a prey in the jaw of the wicked and snatch it. And then you will have the approval of God. That's manhood. It's not manhood to snatch the ball, to strip it from a quarterback or a running back. It's manhood to strip the prey from the jaws of the wicked. Hey? Hey, huh? Jim? You with me? That's all that matters. If Jimmy is with me, because he knows how to shoot. He's in the military. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the men of our church who have volunteered for the military. We thank you for the women of this church who call out for the little ones. We thank you, Father, for the elders who hear our confessions of pornography and discipline us. We thank you for the single mothers here who have had faith in the abandonment of their husbands. We thank you, Father, for the fathers and mothers who taught us the nature of justice and mercy and truth. We thank you for Job, and we thank you for his courage and manliness. We pray, Father, that you will restore to us the knowledge of holiness and our willingness to go beyond avoiding sin to exposing it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.